Skyping Mr. Stephen David Brooks, who should be with us momentarily, and worked as a, a visual effects artist on some Toby Hooper films, second second unit director, and yes. uh, and co-wrote The Mangler. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I'm okay. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, please. Anything for Toby. I'm sure everyone on your show has said that exact same thing. They have, yeah, which is, uh, again, a testament to him as a person, I think, that he inspired such love and loyalty all these years later. Yes, absolutely. He, yeah, he's great. And, you know, I'm honored to be one of the screenwriters who had the, uh, who was it who called it a monogamous screenwriting relationship? Oh, that was Jared, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was perfect. That exactly describes my experience. So you worked on on a couple of different films in different capacities. Do you want to? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Toby was really a mentor to me. Just about every major break I've gotten, I've gotten through Toby. So I was <clears throat> when I was an amateur screenwriter, I fell into visual effects um, as my day job. And John Dykstra, who supervised Star Wars and owned a company called Apogee, um, took me under his wing, and I moved up the visual effects ranks. And then I spent some time in Canada shooting uh, uh, visual effects on a a movie called Millennium, not the TV series, but this... uh, The Chris Christopherson one? Yeah, yeah, that one, yes. And there were a lot of plane crashes, and there was fire, and I was shooting a lot of inserts of things blowing up and fireballs. 
not knowing where it would lead. And I get back to L.A. <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, John Dykstra had done the effects on Life Force and Invaders from Mars. I actually worked on Invaders from Mars. I was the motion control camera assistant on those slit scan laser beams that came out of sort of the what we called the peanut guns, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, so John goes, yeah, Toby Hooper needs a visual effects supervisor on a movie. And uh, I'm busy, so I want you to go up and talk to him. It's like, okay, I'd never been a visual effects supervisor before. I had shot stuff. So I go up there with my VHS tape, this is how long ago it was, of fire stuff. And I had no idea what the movie was. I had seen Toby around Apogee. I had never spoken to him. So I go up to the house in Beverly Hills. He had this wonderful house. Um, sit in the living room. And as always the case with Toby, every TV was on. <laughs> And it was blaring, and it was always usually an old movie. And it, it may have even been the Magnificent Ambersons on. Because the last thing you think of Toby is that that's one of his favorite movies, right? But it is. So we're sitting in the living room. I'm sitting across from Toby Hooper. Obviously, I knew who he was. Um, there's a, There was a sculpted gray alien head on the shelf behind him and a leather face mask. And I think it was the mask from... Saw two, but I checked the Saint Shell Mask or two, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so I had those two things staring at me and Toby. <laughs> and he goes, he starts talking about this movie, Spontaneous Combustion. He goes, you know, can you do fire? I said, well, let's look at the reel. So I put the reel in, and it's just fireballs and things blown up, but it had fire in it. And he's like, and anyone who's worked with Toby can tell you the greatest compliment is when he goes, oh man, that's far out. At the time, I didn't know that. <laughs> I had him, but I had him, and I got hired to be the visual effects supervisor. So that was a first for me. And uh, he was, and he was great. I got to tell you, he was so generous. We get on set, and all of a sudden, now I'm the second year director. He goes, "Oh, can you go shoot these things?" I go, "Yeah, sure." So I was just shooting like car drive-bys and you know shots like that. Um, and then because it was a low-budget movie. Um, we were starting to fall behind schedule a little bit. So I started cleaning up scenes and he would leave me with Brad Dourif to get the last two shots of a scene. And there was an entire subplot. Actually, the first time he put me in front of professional actors, I had to direct Melinda Dillon, Oscar nominee for Close Encounters and Brad Dourif, Oscar nominee for (laughs) One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in a scene. And I had never worked with live action. I mean, you know, professional actors before. Right. Um, so anyway, it, I did that, managed to get through it. And then as if visual effects supervisor, second year director weren't enough, he goes, Oh, I want to put you in the movie. He goes, are you an actor? I go, no. (laughs) And he goes, put on some scrubs. You're an orderly. So, so there's a scene in spontaneous combustion. This is a tribute to what an awful actor I am. Um, my first shot is I'm bring a wheelchair in. Brad Dourif comes running into the hospital uh, his arm has been burnt, and he gets in a wheelchair, and I wheel him into a room, and John Cipher is standing there menacingly. And the scene goes like this. I wheel Brad in. It's a two-shot of Brad and I. Cut to a single of John Cipher. Back to a two-shot of Brad and I. Back to John. Back to Brad, and I'm gone. <laughs> they cut out the whole middle of the scene just to get rid of me. I was so bad. <laughs> it, it's, and, and I begged him. I go, please don't. Make me act right. <laughs> again. Oh he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah man, uh, that's not your strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was spontaneous combustion, and uh, then I went on. You know, he gave me that 
that it's actually quite a bit of a leap from motion control operator to visual effects supervisor. So all of a sudden I was a supervisor, did that for a few years. I was still writing and I was at Disney one day after I'd finished this movie called Wilder Napalm, which was again, fireballs. It was the spontaneous combustion fireball footage that got me Wilder Napalm, which was about fire. Um, And I'm in this stage at Disney and I hadn't talked to Toby in like a year. And, uh, and the phone rings, and it's Toby. He goes, hey, man, do you know anything about horror? I go, <laughs> sure. He goes, have you ever written horror? Because I gave Toby some of my scripts. I don't know if he ever read them, but I gave him scripts. And I, I said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, oh, pick up a copy of Night Shift. Read the Mangler. Come up and talk to me about it. Okay. <laughs> so I went to a bookstore when we still had bookstores, picked up. Night shift, parked in front of that same Beverly Hills house, uh, and I pull out the short story, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's 20, 30, 40 pages, there's something there. It's like a, I remember it being a five-page short story, all told in flashback, with no third act. And I'm reading this going, how the hell are we going to turn this into a screenplay? I mean, I didn't, I did not see the movie at first, right? So I go in, and I sort of told Toby my pitch, I don't remember what I said, and he goes, oh, man, that's far out. I'm going to call Stephen King. All right. So the next morning I get a call at 10 a.m., meaning Toby was up all night because he didn't wake up early. And he said he's been talking to Stephen King. He liked the pitch. Uh, they're going to give me $1,500 and 10 days to write the first draft that Stephen King will have script approval on. Wow. So that was my, that was my first professional writing job. That Toby, I mean, he went out. I mean, he went out on quite a limb to hire me. Um, but there's actually a backstory to the Mangler too. It, the the short story, the rights to the short story were with two producers, and I forget their names, uh, who had produced Lawnmower Man. And if you remember, Stephen King, I think he sued them. There was something because they didn't follow his story. I don't remember the exact details, but because of that. Uh, my understanding is Stephen King wouldn't let those two producers make the Mangler. So the rights were acquired by this legendary, infamous producer named Harry Allen Towers. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your fans will know that name. Um, and he, he hired Toby. And apparently Har- Harry had taken a crack at the screenplay before me. And it turned into a – it was a Chinese laundry where everybody working there was like a 17-year-old Chinese girl. And uh, for some reason, Stephen King rejected that script. <laughs> and it ended up it ended up with me by default, because other writers had taken a crack at it. And all I did was try to do Stephen King and expand it. So anyway, he I wrote the script in 10 days, and 44 drafts, and six months later, we were in South Africa shooting. Wow. That's the short version. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you, I mean, how do you go about the process of, I mean, you read the story. It's like, what is this movie? And even when I've tried to describe the movie to people, well, this haunted laundry press, what? Stop right there. Right. Um, Right. I mean, how do you even approach that material? Right. Well, here's the thing. And, and, like some of your other guests, screenwriting guests have said, I mean, after that first draft, it became, I went to Toby's house every day. Yeah. Well, every evening. We worked from like 5 p.m. till 10 in the morning because that was, 
those were Toby hours. <laughs> and uh, I mean, every single day, seven days a week, we were working on it. And, you know, he would just focus on a line, on a word, and we'd slug through it and get through it. And I mean, I actually learned a lot about the professional craft of screenwriting from him. How do you analyze a scene? How do you go through it scene by scene? It's actually a process I now use if I work with other writers as a director. I use this process that Toby taught me. Um, So we kept... The first thing we realized was, I mean, the key to any horror film is a great monster. And a great monster is one that can attack at any time. So we had a monster that was bolted to the ground. So that was problem number one. It's not a cinematic movie monster. Right. And But also, we couldn't have it get up and leave. I mean, spoiler alert, it gets up and leaves at the end of the short story, and that's the end of it. Um, but we couldn't have it just get up and leave early on because Stephen King had script approval. So we had to follow the basic timeline of the short story. So Toby decided, he said, let's just have fun with it. Because the great thing about Toby is he was a funny guy. And to him, in some respects, horror is funny. And it wasn't until I worked with him and I went back and watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre to realize the humor in it. You know, when they keep handing Grandpa the hammer and he keeps dropping it, right? When what's her name, screaming. I mean, that was real Toby humor right there, right? Um, So what we decided was to at least have a little fun with it. Not make it campy or anything like that. Not an outright comedy, but have fun with the premise. Because that would be the best way to approach it. So what we actually did was, and there's, I don't know if this edit ever existed, but ever still exists, but the there's an edit of the film that was almost the final edit where there's a moment after the first horrific killing at the beginning and Ted Levine comes in as John Hunton, the, the detective who's investigating the crime and there's blood on the floor and they're mopping up the machine. And it's all very, you know, bloody and Toby Hooper like, and the manager of the laundry hands Ted Levine something and Ted Levine picks it up and it's a Timex watch that's bloody, cracked, but still ticking. Now, we made this movie in the 90s, so people still remember there were these Timex ads uh, for Timex watches where uh, the watch would be run over by a, a bulldozer, and they'd go, it takes a licking, keeps on ticking. Right. So we were playing on that joke. At the time, people knew that. Right Now, nobody knows that commercial. <laughs> so anyway, we have that in there, and we screen the movie with that comedic moment in there. And when we did that, audiences, this is like three, four minutes into the movie, audiences go, oh, there's humor here. Okay. And then they would go with the rest of the humor. Well, an executive who was looking at the film for distribution didn't understand why the watch was still ticking and said, either you explain it or cut it out. So the producers panicked and cut it out. Right. So then I saw the movie without that one comedic moment and the rest of the humor doesn't play at all mm-hmm. because there was nothing obvious to telegraph to the audience. Have fun with it. Just go with it. I, I revisited the film this week and I mean, it certainly helps to be such a fan and be familiar with um, his work and just kind of, you know, what he finds funny. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, again, I don't know that it was designed comically i don't think it was but i found myself during those the first kill um when uh mrs 
Mrs. Frawley. Mrs. Yes. Frawley, thank you, gets sucked into the laundry press. And Robert England's up there just stomping around and shouting and everyone's screaming yes. and there's blood everywhere. And I was by myself cackling just at the the excess of it all in the best way. It's intentional. That it's, was intentional. Okay. Right? See, that's what I was talking about. That was the approach. That's why, I mean, first of all, Robert's character, Gartley, is only mentioned in the short story. So yes. That was the other thing is in the 10 days of writing the first draft, I had to create a character for Robert England. And then word came through, Robert wanted to wear leg braces. So, okay, we have to write the leg braces in. So, <laughs> But, yes, that was absolutely – that's why Robert played it that way. Right. But without that Timex watch thing at the beginning, you don't know how to take it. Well, and I think, you know, unfortunately, the movie came out at kind of a weird time for horror where, you know, kind of the 80s yes. wave had crested. Scream hadn't yet come out and kind of right. – kickstarted it again people were maybe feeling like uh there's too many stephen king adaptations like there were all these things that i feel like were right. working against it and didn't allow everyone to kind of for lack of a better expression get it right yeah yeah it, it. And it, it had because it had that odd tone that you didn't know how to take unless the cues were there, right. and the big cue was cut out, and that just I think that's what hurt it. And even even the director's cut that is touted that's on DVD and so on is not all that it is is that was long after the Timex was cut out, and they were like shaving frames here or there for gore for the MPAA. Okay, and that's all that was. There's I don't think the the cut with the Timex exists anywhere, unless I have an old VHS of it somewhere. But yeah. anyway, um, so after the Mangler, do you, do you guys you guys don't really work together again after that? No, no, we like once again, like your other guests, we had um, at, we had the same agent. We both got it the same agent based on uh, the Mangler, mm-hmm. um, and. We had a deal. We went to pitch Bob Weinstein. Uh, this is right. This was before Dimension Films had been formed, and he was looking for material to launch Dimension at Miramax. And Toby and I, with our agent, went in to pitch Bob Weinstein. Um, and <laughs> it's actually very funny. We so we go to the Peninsula Hotel. It's a very expensive hotel in Beverly Hills. Uh, we wait in the lobby as – I forget the guy's name. He was the first president of Dimension Films. Uh, comes down. Of course, Bob is 30 minutes late, but that's fine. So we go up. We go down the hallway to the suite at the end. We can already hear Bob screaming into a phone. We had met him the night before, by the way, and he was like the sweetest, nicest guy. And then we go down the hallway and we hear this screaming and yelling on the phone, and it was Bob on the phone. So <laughs> we walk into the suite – all the furniture had been moved to the side in the living room, and there were two chairs facing one another, like an interrogation. And Toby turns to me and goes, oh, man, you pitch it. <laughs> I go, okay. So, so, so I sit there. Bob comes in, and he just doesn't say hello, doesn't say anything. He just sits in his chair, folds his arm, and has the God, this poker face, I swear, the best poker face. And he just stares at me. And mind you, I wasn't ready to pitch. I thought Toby was going to do the pitch. Toby was the reason we were there. It wasn't because of me. Um, so anyway, I, I pitched this story, um, and it seems like an eternity. It was probably like four minutes 
if that. And uh, Bob Weinstein stands up and says, this sounds like a fucking Miramax movie to me. Let's do it. We all shook hands. It was all smiles. Bob went back into the bedroom, picked up the phone again, started yelling at someone else. And I thought, wow, this is, we're going to make, we're going to launch Dimension Films. Because that's what he was looking for. This is before he found Scary Movie, which became Scream, right? Right, right? So we had a deal. The agent was negotiating the deal, negotiating for two months, three months, four months, six months. And all of a sudden, my agent calls and goes, yeah, it's dead. What's dead? The deal's dead. To this day, I don't know what happened. Okay. Um, but that was – that deal was dead. So we had other – we had other stories. We were trying to do a, a movie about gargoyles, sort of gargoyles on buildings that are come to life and attack. And we were going around town pitching that. And, you know, it's the same story. You go and you pitch and people say they love it, but then they don't call you back so nothing happens. Or you get it close to happening and it doesn't happen and, you know. So – I mean. So then, uh, when nothing was happening, he called me one day and said, I'm doing this giant spider movie for New Image. Do you want to write it? I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went in and met Boaz Davidson, New Image. And uh, that was the genesis of Spiders, which I wrote for Toby, but he ended up directing. There was another script that was done sooner called Crocodile. Mm -hmm. So he did Crocodile, and then another director came in and did Spiders. Um, but that was that was the last time we worked together. Okay. Um, but also, I had, but I also had graduated from Toby Hooper University, right? He he was the best film school. I learned a great deal about screenwriting. I learned about as a director, screen direction. He was a master at screen direction, eye lines, um, how to move the camera, especially when you have more than two people in a room, how to move the camera so that you keep all the eye lines and the geography straight so that you can edit it multiple ways. I mean, all these things. It was actually a very funny thing when he taught me about eye lines. It was on spontaneous combustion. I think I missed an eye line, and he had me reshoot something. And he taught me how to do it, and then he looked at me, and he, he, he kind of goes, I learned that from Steven. <laughs> said, oh, okay. Um, if you look at Steven Spielberg movies, the eye lines are immaculate, right? Perfect. Um so anyway, I mean, I went off and did my own thing. Um, uh, actually, the genesis of the first movie that I directed, a thing called Heads and Tails, he, Toby and I were coming back from a film festival the, uh, in Jeremy, France, Fantastica, where the Mangler played. And we're walking down the Champs-Élysées, and I said to him, I had an idea for a movie. I said, I have this movie about two criminals who flip a coin each morning to decide whose day it is to kill if someone needs to be killed. I'm going to call it Heads or Tails. And he goes, no, man, call it Heads and Tails, then it's a buddy movie. <laughs> and that, But that idea, I, I turned around, I went back to the hotel and started making notes. Yeah. I went home and wrote that in two weeks. So I eventually, you know, 10 years later, directed it, and I did show it to him, and he thought it was far out. He goes, oh, man, that's far out. That's far out. But by that time, I had graduated. I was doing my own thing. So, you know, he was on to, I think, Adam and Jace were the next people who were taking it to Toby University yeah. <laughs> to learn the ropes. And he did a, he did a handful of, uh, of movies with them as well. Um, yeah. I just I yeah. love all the stories about, you know, again, I've heard from a number of people that have said, like, just how supportive he was, how willing he was to – watch your film or read your script or, you know, whoever it was that was yeah. looking for, you know, 
input or just uh, that he was just always willing to do that. It's it's I just love that. Yeah, I do. Have, I have a couple of just funny anecdotes. Yeah. That when we were in, everyone knows Toby was the king of Dr Pepper, right? He drank <laughs> at least ten a day, I think. Oh my god! And he always had one open, one open, almost done, and then he'd open a new one, but still finish the old one. It was this. So anyway, in South Africa, you couldn't get Dr Pepper. He was going through Dr Pepper withdrawals, so. Uh, we had to order ultimate blue screen paint from London and fly it into South Africa for the Mangler. And Toby had me order a case of LucasAid to go with it. LucasAid is this British soft drink that's just all sugar and caffeine. It's like Dr. Pepper, right? But he, 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 he loved it after, from doing Life Force. So we had to ship blue screen paint and LucasAid. <laughs> from London to keep Toby happy. <laughs> but it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. Um, so where uh, where can people find more of your work? Uh, well, my latest feature, Flytrap, which actually stars Jeremy Crutchley, who was the picture man in The Mangler. Yes. Um, met him in South Africa, and he moved to the U.S. Um, I... He's in a, my film Flytrap, which is available worldwide, Amazon Prime. You can, if you have Amazon Prime, you can stream it for free. Um, and uh, other films I'm working on are not available yet because sure. they're still in the you know <laughs> process of coming together, falling apart. I don't know which, but the, they're in the meat grinder. The um, real quick, the like the you know the scripts that you were developing with Toby Hooper. Uh, it sounds like they were pretty much all in the horror genre. Yes. Yes. So was that, was that him just saying, I know they won't let me make something else or was he just genuinely interested in sticking with horror? My understanding has always been, you know, that he kind of wanted to do some other things and pretty yeah, quickly. Yes. it yeah, was. He, right. It was the kind of thing. I mean, we would show our agent. I, I, I showed my agent a script that we had worked on Toby and I, that was not horror. It was science fiction. And the agent said, this isn't horror, right. and wouldn't send it out. So, it, yes, I mean, like I said, Toby's favorite movie is Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah. That's not a horror film. I mean, he had a wire-haired terrier named Amberson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wasn't named Leatherface or Nosferatu. Right. Um, no, he wanted to branch out and do other things. I mean, Toby was just a storyteller. It's just that. I mean, his first film, Eggshells, which I think is being – isn't there a Blu-ray out now or there's going to be of his first film? There um, is was not, in the UK. Yeah, not horror at all. Yeah. No, but I think someone here – and it may be Lewis Black, um, you know, who founded South by Southwest. He may be the one doing it. I know someone – I read somewhere someone has found a, a great print of Eggshells and is doing a – an HD or a 4K reconstruction, or they've already done it. But I've seen Eggshell. I saw it on VHS. It's not horror at all. Right, right. right? But, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is your first big hit. You get to do horror. That's And he loved horror. I mean, he loved doing that, but he did want to do other things as well, but the business wouldn't let him. Right, right. Well, because his name above the title, you know. Right guarantees a certain budget and guarantees a certain release and is marketable. Whereas right. his name above the title of a drama doesn't have the same 
right. doesn't carry the same weight. Um, anyway, right. thank you so much. This was a, a true pleasure talking to you, and I really yes. appreciate it. Thank know, you for having me. I'm yeah. happy to honor Toby. It's super awesome. Uh, I want to go watch The Mangler as soon as I'm done with this, actually. And I just watched it like three days ago. I think I'm going to watch it just again. Just imagine that, imagine that Timex watch in there. <laughs> I'll pause it. I'll do the joke, and then I'll press play again. Yeah, yeah there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much, man. This was great. All right. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. All right. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.